God, we just acknowledge your presence here, and we don't want to assume to invite your presence among us as you invite us into your presence, and that's how we come this morning. And we want to recognize, Lord, that we uh, are coming from many walks of life, many life circumstances uh, in which we bring into this building. And honestly, that complex picture of what it means to be the church is a beautiful thing and not something we should downplay. So thank you for the unity that is brought by your spirit. Just by singing together, not so much to align our thoughts as much as just to align our hearts. God, knowing that you are for us and that we are loved. And thank you for that reminder this morning. May the words of our mouths and the, the meditation of our hearts be pleasing to you, God, as we take a look at what faith is and enable us to do that. Give us open ears and open hearts to accept your word in your son's name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for um, any prayers for me this past week. I think probably most of you heard that I threw my back out last Saturday. I was actually supposed to preach here last Sunday and at the very last moment, you know, which often happens, you know, in life, um, I did something early Saturday morning and I was completely out for the rest of the day, just on my back and um, no fun at all, as you can imagine, very painful, but such that I, I couldn't even uh, show up to church. And I just want to publicly thank Amelia and the staff, um, Austin uh, Charles, everybody, Kevin, for stepping up and just making Plan B work out very smoothly. I heard it was a wonderful morning of worship, and um, that's not easy when you have to make big adjustments at the last minute. So many thanks to our great staff here for pulling that off. As you know, we've been going through a sermon series, um, How Can Faith Help With Various Life Experiences Like Anxiety? regret, fear, uncertainty, and doubt. Um, even last week, Amelia preached about the Bible and how, how the Bible can play a part in faith. Um, and I'm so glad these weeks just to take a look at the benefits of faith, to be reminded of that, especially now that we're in person. I think there's just a visual reminder of what it looks like and what it could be to be the community of faith. Um, and I'm just so grateful for that for me and my family. We're pretty new here at the river just to be in a community that values critical thinking and a growing faith in God. And that's really what I want to talk about this morning. If I was to add my voice to the conversation of where we've been and talking about faith, it would be to consider this. What does a growing faith look like? What does a growing faith look like? If faith is so vital to living the abundant life that Jesus tells us about and, and encourages us to consider, what is it that we're talking about when we talk about faith? When we use the word faith, we're really using it in two different forms, both of which are supported in the Bible. We talk about faith being an essential tool for the spiritual life, which is often synonymous with the word trust. We have faith that good will come from our circumstances or that God will work on our behalf. And faith is in this way, I believe, something that we do. We say things like, we need to have more faith, or I feel like I've lost all faith right now. And this 
in this form, faith is quantifiable and can be measured on any particular day. How much of it do you have? How are you lacking in it? But another word, a way we use the word faith is to categorize the entire Christian life itself. Or more specifically, to talk about one's lifelong relationship with the Creator. And this is to talk about living a life of faith. This is more about who we are, not just what we do. Which is why in some situations we might be described as church as the faithful. And this is not so much about the quantity of trust and belief that someone has as much as about their quality of life. We might say somebody is a person of faith or they're not a person of faith. It's this second form of the word that I want to focus in on this morning. And by the way, throughout all the gospel, Jesus is completely trying to critique and really upend our idea of what is the life of faith. The ones that we thought were out are in, and the religious authorities who say that they're first, all of a sudden are last. And Jesus is constantly turning this system on its head. So I think it's really important to pay attention to that and why it's important for us to talk about it this morning. Language, I feel, is very important. It shapes our beliefs, and our beliefs shape our actions. So trying to understand just what is meant by living a life of faith, I believe, is very worthwhile. When it comes to living a life of faith, for me, there's two models. There's a house of cards approach, and there's four stages approach, which is more of a process model. And these are the two that I want to unpack this morning, and we'll do that in just a moment. What is at stake are two poles for the Christian. On one end, you have maybe a judgmental person whose worldview may ultimately lead down a path of strict binaries, of tribalism, which leads to racism and other isms, even oppression. This is a constricting view of faith. And this is really the laundry list in our recent Christian history from the way I see it, of we see acts of hatred and genocide and hatred of racism, all of that in the name of faith in just our recent history. I think about the Crusades and people being burned at the stakes just for not believing the same thing that the church believes. And we would call those oppressors, but we're, we're very slow to label the church as oppressing people. On the other end of the spectrum is a Christian worldview that leads to humility and love and acceptance and ultimately harmony. And this is an expansive view of faith. And the fork in the road, right in the middle is faith and how you pursue what it means to live a life of faith. We've been talking about how faith can help us with fear, anxiety, and uncertainty. But as a leader in the church, I want to recognize this morning and say from the platform that it's often the case that faith itself is what causes those things, trying to get it right. Are we on the right side? Does that person have it? Do I have it? And really, that could be the cause of some of our fear and anxiety. So I want to share just a little bit about my faith journey, if you don't mind. And really, this, this whole talk this morning is just a little bit of kind of how I've come through uh, a faith journey and where I am today, uh, which, by the way, there are no easy answers, and <laughs> I have not arrived. So, uh, But I grew up in a Christian household, maybe like many of you. We moved around quite a bit. My dad was in the Army, and 
we landed in Southeast Virginia eventually, but most of our, my childhood years were spent overseas in Germany. Um, during those years, my dad serving in the Army. And no matter where we went, I can remember all those earlier years that we quickly found a Christian home uh, to worship in. That was very important to our family. Church worship was high priority for us. Some of the foundational building blocks of my faith journey were shaped during that time. Uh, worshiping next to my mom in church, um, I can remember as a young boy just knowing that faith can affect any aspect of my life and could be expressed with all of our emotions. Being a part of the church's worship and liturgy, such as communion, corporate prayer, and baptism, I learned that faith is important and there's a mystery worth pursuing and learning about. Regular Bible study and preaching taught me that I am loved by God and living a life of faith is loving God back. Hearing my mom's prayers for us at night taught me that God is watching over me and that I'm not alone. These are some of the early building blocks of my faith. In fact, much of what I learned about faith came from my mom. Though as much as she taught us about faith, she also taught us to be inquisitive and to ask questions and to push back and to look deeper. And maybe a moment of vulnerability here. So I have a nickname from growing up. From my earliest days, my mom gave me the nickname Turtle. Um, and she explains that when we would go around walking together on the sidewalk as a family, I would often be the one way far in the pack. I would just walk very slowly. She said I would always be looking up and, and bumping into things, bumping into poles, trash cans, that kind of thing. So, of course, my family never lets me live that down. There's still some form of that nickname floating out there most days. But um, I think that really makes sense to me in my later years that I've always really been kind of looking up and wondering and, and pondering, questioning, and really never just taking life at face value. And that was really kind of the beginning of the development of a faith journey in my own life. When I was 11, I made a profession of faith. You might have heard that phrase at, at a summer church camp. But if I can be honest with you, when I think back even to those early days before turning 11 in that camp experience, I feel like I was on the journey. I feel like God was working in my life. And it's hard to say that that's the moment where faith started for me. And my journey admittedly has come a long way. I've, you know come into different beliefs and different ways to express my faith life. Um, and in fact, recently, some old church friends, you know, made the comments to me, you've really changed, Mike. You're really not the same Mike that you used to be. And they were saying that in a negative way. And I thought to myself, and honestly, I said to them out loud as well, aren't we all supposed to be changing? Were we always meant to hang on to the same beliefs that we were taught when we were young kids? Um, but just the fact that they would critique that really kind of sparked something in my own mind um, of how normative I feel like that should be for most people. But faith for many people is an acquisition. It's something you accomplish at one juncture in life, something like a club membership. In fact, they even many times ask you to sign a piece of paper. And it feels like this transactional kind of thing that you're signing on to or what some would call a house of cards belief system. 
a set of beliefs and practices are handed over to you, neatly kind of stacked up, one against the other, such that each props up the other. And everything remains strong, and that structure remains intact, so long as that nothing is shaken, nothing is pulled out or tugged on. That's to say that the moment somebody pulls one of those cards out from the structure, the whole thing can come crashing down. I remember thinking this way as a young college student. I went away to college uh, pretty far from home. I grew up in Southeast Virginia when we came back from Germany. And then I attended college in Texas. So my structure, my, my support system wasn't there as a young college student. And in those early years, I can remember thinking very specifically, as I was learning new things, being exposed to new things, that I remember thinking that if I accept this thing that I'm being told as true, it would make me question everything else that I believed, even the very existence of God. It was a very strict kind of structure that I had built up. And it was with that kind of fear as a young college student that I was very tentative to learn new ideas or read books about things that would challenge my belief system. I can remember thinking very specifically, this one thing may very well be true, but I'm going to choose not to believe it because it, then it doesn't, it doesn't force me to challenge everything else that I believe. Has that inner dialogue ever happened within you? Am I, am I the only one? You know, to, to refuse to believe something or resist a direction that is resonating within your soul because it requires a certain uncomfortable openness to change. And a house of cards kind of faith structure only works if nothing is taken away or shaken. It's really an all or nothing commitment. We then feel like we have to protect that structure and fortify it against potential enemies, even if those forces are good. In my earlier church days, it was called apologetics. Literally, the discipline of defending religious doctrine through systematic argumentation and discourse. And in those days, I remember studying the Bible, not to become more like Christ, but to defend my faith, really my set of beliefs against those who didn't believe the same way I did, so that if I ever got into an argument, I would know enough about God and the Bible to win that argument. Can you imagine the stress and the shame that that puts on a young person to defend against the entire world what faith is and who God is. And really, shame was the tool that was used by some of my churches in those early years to guilt us into becoming kind of this member of the club that was to be defended. The house of cards approach leads with the assumption that you have it all figured out so that there's no chink in the armor to be exposed, you know, to know that you know that you know. And to me, having it all figured out is not the life of faith that Jesus is calling us to. And even more, I believe that that kind of approach to faith could lead to harmful actions. You could see how this worldview might move somebody toward a constricting worldview. Boundaries are then necessary, essential to, to separate those who are in and who are out. And that no longer feels like the good news to me. I want to just share a, another story from my earlier years. I have a good friend uh, who growing up was a strong person of faith. By this I mean he was a prominent 
Christian in our high school and in our church. Uh, you spent the weekends evangelizing on the sidewalks uh, just with such a boldness and fierceness. You know, he would spend his free time at Planned Parenthood clinics protesting. He wore this giant, huge wooden cross that he made himself. And just a very simple kind of wardrobe, if you kind of picture like maybe what John the Baptist looked like, just very stripped down. And that, that's the way he set himself apart from all the other casual Christians that were in our high school. And I remember toward the end of high school, he had what some would call a crisis of faith after reading a book called Losing Faith and Faith. And the book chronicled a, a story of a charismatic worship leader who had a prominent member in the church who developed aggressive cancer. And the whole church rallied around this woman of God and prayed for her constantly that the cancer would go, to, go away. And it got to the point where the worship leader gave God an ultimatum. Either you hear our prayers and you take this cancer away, or I won't believe that you exist anymore. I'll completely do away with faith. And just by the title of the book alone, Losing Faith and Faith, you know what happens. The lady dies of cancer, and he, he goes the other way. He says, I don't believe in faith anymore. I don't have it. And my friend, after that experience, was, was quite different and went down a pretty dark path in life. Um, and though he's turned his back to this day on organized religion, he uses foul language, he smokes, he drinks a little bit, I still see a very spiritual person who finds the mystery of the divine in very unorthodox places. And it makes me wonder um, if I went to him today and gave him a different model for faith, if he would still feel like he lost his faith. You know, this house of cards understanding of faith came crashing down for him as soon as one little card was pulled out. A second model of faith considers faith as a lifelong journey, winding along full of uncertainty, maybe even doubt, and never fully arriving. In a moment, I want to look at four stages in that model. For me, a life of faith doesn't necessarily have to have a clear beginning or even an ending, but something more like the terrain of the Tour de France. And you might know this bike race that takes place. It covers nearly 140 miles over multiple days and includes 21 stages, nine flat stages, three hilly stages, seven mountain stages, including five mountain summits, and, and then two individual time trials and two rest days. If we understood the life of faith, something more like this race that is a lifelong journey, then there's a sort of humility that I believe we are led to. If Christians subscribe to this model, we'd be far less critical and quick to label people and to sit in judgment just based on what we see. I think this is why it always makes me cringe a little bit when I hear the latest LifeWay poll. LifeWay is a conservative Christian institution they put out a, a, a new poll every now and then um, to show the rapid decrease in percentage of those who are saved based solely on declining church attendance. And often these polls are meant to communicate how we are becoming less and less spiritual as a society, as if spirituality hinged on whether or not you are part of a church. Now, hear me clearly, I think being a part of a church is very healthy 
and even essential to a, a really robust spiritual life. But it does not mean that people are less spiritual necessarily. And we quickly, I think what makes me cringe is that we're so quick to make assumptions on the life and faith journeys of some of these people just based on the way they're living, how they talk, how they dress, what their church membership looks like. This is like judging an athlete in the Tour de France who is struggling to make it up the mountain while you're just kind of cruising along on a flat ground. You're both in the race, but perhaps they're in a very different part of their journey than you are. And you could see how this view of faith can move one toward a more expansive worldview. So where is your support for this in the Bible? Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 17 that faith is like a mustard seed. And a mustard tree or bush can grow upwards of 20 to 30 feet, not just tall, but even wide. It begins as one of the smallest seeds, only one to two millimeters in size, but it can take months to grow into one of the largest, really, of its kind. And like a seed, faith is expected to grow, to blossom into something much more than what it started out to be. You see, Jesus wasn't saying that you only needed to have very small faith. That's not why he alluded to the seed. He, didn't want, he wasn't saying you needed to have small faith to make something happen. He was making the point that faith is beneficial to the extent that it was allowed to bloom into its full potential. In another parable, Jesus compares faith understood there as the kingdom of God to yeast. A small amount works throughout the entire dough, and over time it rises and doubles in size. And in these two illustrations, faith is something that starts pretty small but becomes something else entirely in the end. 1 Corinthians 13, 11 speaks to this need for a maturing faith. Listen to this. It says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became an adult, I put an end to childish ways. In James 1, 2 through 4, faith needs to be tested by trials so that it can do its complete work in us in order for us to be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Faith needs time to mature. In Philippians 1.6, Paul's letter to the church says that the one who started the good work in you will carry it on to completion. In Hebrews 12.2, we are called on to look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. See, faith is going somewhere. There is a movement. There's an arc to it. There's a journey to it. It's never just stagnation. It's hard to read the words of Jesus and think that faith can be boiled down to merely a membership to a club. And as long as you pay your dues and you go to your meetings, you're going to be in and you'll be fine And I'm not sure that it's this set of beliefs you hold on to for dear life, for the rest of your life. I want to just propose four stages of what faith could be. And really, this has been transformational to me. I, I learned this from one of our leading American theologians in our time, Brian McLaren. You might know that name. Please read some of his stuff. Very wise in the way he looks at life. But he offers these four stages of faith development in his book, Faith After Doubt. 
And this model has helped me, I believe, become more sympathetic to folks around me, less judgmental. The first stage he calls simplicity. And this is the experience we have as a child. In this stage, we are taught that there is right and there's wrong. There's good and there's bad. There's very clear lines. It's a dualistic way of thinking. The world is one way, and you really have no reason to believe that it's anything else. As a young person, your authority figures are almost godlike, or at least they represent God, and whatever they say is the gospel truth. These figures might be your parents or your pastors, maybe your teachers, maybe your Sunday school teacher. And everything in life can be known and explained in easy answers. Some people or places or ideas are safe and some are not. There are certain ways of thinking uh, or certain beliefs that you hold to that are right and all the others are wrong. In this simplistic stage, there's a clear sense of who is in your group and who is not. And that's what we call tribalism. And life then is kind of like a war. And the sad truth, many people believe that this is what the church is supposed to be. You know, leaders in fundamentalist settings uh, lead with the understanding that this is the way everything is. And your job is really just to accept it wholly without question and defend it at any cost. Christians and whole strands of the religious community never really leave the first stage in this faith journey we call simplicity. They guard this way of thinking with a fierceness. McLaren talks about a second stage called complexity. And for most, this might begin around puberty or maybe some the first time you went off to college, which I think was probably more my experience. You're being exposed to a world that is more complex than you realize. And you realize there's more than one way to do things. And duality for you begins to break down. It's no longer as simple as good and bad, right and wrong, us and them. And, you know, maybe it's your parents who have served as your moral compass for, for all those years. They're getting a divorce and you start to question things. Or maybe a mentor or a leader in your life is being charged with a major misconduct. But regardless, there are no easy answers anymore in this stage. Instead of looking for easy answers, your authority figures that you look to help you to adjust to a more complex world. This is a very pragmatic stage. How am I going to reconcile these things and make all of this work out? Can you remember this time in your life? I do. In fact, I, I remember specifically a very vivid experience as a teenager riding in the backseat of a car in Fort Worth, Texas. Um, I have visited Fort Worth on and off while we lived in Virginia. My uncle lived there. And I remember having this feeling one day, and I don't remember what led me to the feeling, but I remember the feeling very specifically that my mom specifically was not always going to be right about everything. And that just kind of brought me out of simplicity a little bit. It just, it kind of shook me. It was not a comfortable feeling, honestly. It was pretty empty, confusing for a little kid who just always clung to your parents saying, whatever they say is right, whatever they do is right and everything's going to be just fine. Um, but being out on my own for the first time, really, and coming to that realization that sometimes they're going to be humans and mess up and not always be right. Um, for some of you that have been a person of faith for many years, 
Can you think back to a particular moment or set of circumstances that might have led you to that breakdown of simplicity in your life? And, and maybe it's never happened. Maybe it's always been, this is the way I was raised. This is what I believe even today. Um, as we, as connected as we are in our time, I believe it's, it's really hard to stay in that mindset of simplicity. We are faced so often with a complex world and I think naturally are led into complexity. If you move to that stage, there's a third stage that might follow what Brian McLaren calls perplexity. In this stage, you become aware that there are many beliefs and opinions and who can really, really know who is right, who is wrong. For me, this was going into graduate school. I was warming up to the realization that the world is a complex place and I was being met with a multitude of ideas and positions for almost everything that I once believed without a shadow of a doubt. And it wasn't so much about being right or wrong anymore. Rather, I had to use my critical thinking to figure out how I could be my most authentic self. And really, the authority figures in this stage, the good people, are those who are honest about their questions and not just looking to give you simple answers. These are your mentors, sometimes your pastors, sometimes your professors. In perplexity, the lines between us and them are not as distinct. They're even blurred a little. There's a mystery to God who cannot be fully known. Have you heard the statement that the longer I live, the less I know? Yeah, this isn't because we become dumber as we grow older. I hope not. It's because we're becoming more open to mystery and we're growing in humility knowing that we don't know everything. And maturity is accepting that fact. I remember going through that journey of having to know everything, but then slowly, slowly, slowly being okay with not knowing everything to the point that actually mystery and unknowing can be your best friends. And it could be healthy to embrace that. It's, it's a scary place, but I do feel like it's part of a maturing worldview to come to terms with that. Um, and for another day, another sermon, I, I want to propose that mystery and doubt are not the enemy of faith. And in many traditions, it's taught that way, that it is. And then in other traditions, there's this healthy understanding that mystery and doubt actually plays a healthy part in developing your faith. And that's really kind of where I've landed these days. Um, there's a great value in being in stage three of your faith development, but the problem is that it sometimes can lead to cynicism and leave you in a place where you're always needing to critique and deconstruct your beliefs. And that process is helpful, but not ultimately wholesome for your faith. So after you've wrestled with your cynicism and your deconstruction, you might move into a fourth stage, a final stage of faith, what McLaren calls harmony or humility. This is really where a growing faith is wanting to go. In this stage, you take full responsibility for yourself rather than just being fed what other sources are telling you. And like we read in 1 Corinthians 13, 11 earlier, you put an end to childish ways. What is stage four? It's really the movement toward love. Earlier in that chapter of 1 Corinthians, we see that love pushes its way to the top. It says, faith, hope, and love remain, but the greatest of these is what? 
love. Your need to be right no longer takes precedence in how you see others or how you interact with others. In fact, the whole idea of being right isn't really a thing anymore. Only love remains. And that's really the final stage of faith development. So where, where are you with all this? I know I'm still kind of wrestling with it all. And, you know, if I can be completely honest and blunt this morning, this is just kind of what has, this journey is kind of what has defined much of my just digging into what spirituality looks like. And I, I don't get to preach a whole lot, so I wanted to share with you a little bit about my journey. I hope that unpacking that allows you to situate yourself in that journey and, and honestly, on top of everything, to just give you permission and an expansiveness to explore and not beat yourself up. Some of us really stay in stage one of our faith development, and maybe not always for the bad reasons. Maybe you're a parent who's had multiple children for who knows how long growing up as young kids. You've had to remain in that stage one type of faith as you teach your children about the world. You really haven't had the luxury of consider growing beyond that. Or maybe you're stuck in stage three kind of faith, fighting against the authority of figures in your life who seek to control everything with, with their systems of belief. What is right? What is wrong? Who is in? Who's out? Always trying to ask you to subscribe to that. And you're really not sure how to move from this stage of cynicism and deconstruction. Maybe that's you. I don't have the answers for you. And honestly, that phrase is something I wish I heard from the pulpit growing up as a kid. I wish I had a pastor who just said, there are no easy answers, but you can enjoy this complex, this beautiful, this winding, never fully arriving life we call faith. And that could be an enjoyable thing if you get rid of the shame and all of the weight that we often carry to try to defend it. Humility leads us to dealing differently with the world around us. And I find that there's something really fruitful that can come from realizing that faith is a complex journey, breaking down duality, which I think ultimately leads us to humility and love. And in the end, that's what Jesus was trying to tell us to do. So in closing, I want to leave you with a word of encouragement. I want to echo the prayer that Paul prayed for the early Christian church in Thessalonica. I got that word right, I think. In 2 Thessalonians 1.3. These are his words, to, and I think my words to you as well. Brothers and sisters, we cannot help but thank God for you, which is only appropriate because your faith is growing and expanding and because love, the love demonstrated by each and every one of you is overflowing for one another. That's my prayer as well. A faith that is growing, it's expanding, and it ultimately leads, a life, leads to a life of overflowing love for one another. May it be so. Amen. Let's pray together. God, we want to recognize that We've been led probably in many of our circumstances and our circles to think that the life of faith is, is something to carry like a weight around, to be defended, um, to be pushed back against for those that call us into question. 
But we want to recognize just your freeing words that we find even in the scriptures that allow us to pursue this faith that actually grows and expands and leads us into different avenues, even sometimes different beliefs, and maybe ultimately to loosening the grip on belief altogether and to be led by your spirit, which blows here and there and really never fully realizing where it's going, but just being free in that movement. That's really our prayer. We want to recognize that we sometimes hold on to a certain view of faith that has led us to a constricting worldview that ostracizes people, that oppresses people. Lord, we recognize that in our recent history as a church, and we want to denounce that kind of faith. Lead us to one that leads to love, that gives room for people to not have the same beliefs that we do, not have the same look that we do, not say the same things that we do. But in the end, there is love. We thank you to empower us toward that kind of life. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen. Amen. Would you stand with us as we worship? This is probably a song that you don't know, but I hope you'll listen to the words, a reminder that, as we said, faith, hope, and love remain, but the greatest is love. Let's be reminded of that this morning.